The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 6. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about astral instructions, creepy canines, eerie elevators, and dangerous desires. On our last episode, we introduced you to author Christopher Maxim and four of his tales and asked if you would consider helping him during a very difficult time in his life. This episode, we're featuring four more of Chris's sinister stories, which he has generously shared with us, and are once again asking for any assistance you can offer. As I mentioned before, Chris has, unfortunately, been hit hard, both financially and physically, by the coronavirus pandemic. He suffers from a high-risk health condition that's left him immune-compromised, and quarantined indefinitely. Coupled with serious issues collecting unemployment, Chris has found it difficult to make ends meet, let alone afford the treatment he needs to improve his health. So I'd like to ask you, after hearing his tales tonight, to consider helping him in his time of need, either by donating to him directly or by purchasing his books on Amazon.com. Every little bit helps and would mean a lot not only to Chris, but to those of us in the horror fiction community that have followed his work for years. We've set up an author profile for Chris on our website at simplyscarypodcast.com slash maxim, spelled M-A-X-I-M. On that page, you'll find links to Chris's Amazon page, as well as an assortment of his featured books. You'll also find a donation link that will allow you to show your appreciation by contributing a few dollars to him directly. Just look for the donation link to his social media links at the top of the page. You can also use the page to contact Chris if you'd like to ask about other ways to help. From Chris, 
me, and everyone on our team, thanks again for your support. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. And the show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight from Christopher Maxim, someone exploring the concept of astral projection discovers just how little they know about the true scope of our reality. Without further ado, I present to you How to Exit Your Body. The sleeping mind fascinates me, namely the nighttime hallucinations we call dreams. Because of this, I keep a journal to record every thought that passes through my brain at night. I set at least one alarm each day so that I'm able to wake up during my REM cycles and recall my grandest dreams. Sometimes I fall back asleep, but for the most part, I keep up with it. It's been an enlightening experience, and so far, I've filled a dozen notebooks with my nightly adventures. In addition to cataloging my dreams, I study the phenomenon. I've dissected every sleep guide at my disposal and watched countless documentaries. I even took an elective back in high school called Nocturnal Fantasies, though it only lasted one semester. Not enough students shared my affinity for the topic. In other words, most of my waking life is consumed by sleep in one form or another. Craving more knowledge on the subject, I recently pursued my town library's massive local authors section. I was hoping to find a book on dreams I hadn't read, as this was the one part of the library I'd yet to set foot in. It was a long shot, but one I was willing to take in the name of research. After fishing through a plethora of self-published romance novels, I happened across one non-fiction title that caught my eye. Sleep Tactics, Exercises for a Mind at Rest, written by Jack Grovewood. The blurb on the back was vague and reminiscent of a self-help book with quotes like, Learn the secrets to a good night's rest, and Feed your mind's insatiable appetite for better understanding. Not a book of dreams, per se, but it did pique my interest. Delving into the book at home, I found it to be more up my alley than I previously expected. It was filled with chapters pertaining to lucid dreaming, meditation, and even sleepwalking. I was already familiar with most of the content, but it turned out to be an enjoyable read. It wasn't until the last chapter, though, that I was caught completely off guard. I will outline most of it below. Chapter 16. How to Exit Your Body Disclaimer. This is not an OBE, or out-of-body experience. As stated in Chapter 8, out of body, out of bed, I do believe in OBEs, but I find that they're just another form of dreaming. What I'm about to divulge to you is something completely different. 
It's neither an OBE nor any dream state. This is a way to truly exit your body using sleep paralysis as the catalyst. Before I discuss specifics, I'd like to go over a few prerequisites. To pull this off, you must be proficient at lucid dreaming. What I mean by this is that you need to have lucid dreams regularly and retain lucidity for longer periods of time in these dreams. It also helps if you're able to manipulate your dream environment with ease. If you only lucid dream on occasion, you'll have to train your mind to do so more often. See Chapter 6, Becoming a Lucid Lucy. If you, however, are unable to lucid dream, then this technique is not for you. It's nothing personal. You simply lack the tools needed for departure. Another requirement is sleep paralysis. Most of us have experienced this at one time or another, but it will help immensely if you're experiencing it uh, on a regular basis. Coupled with lucidity and a focused mind, sleep paralysis is the only way out of your own skin, so to speak. That's all you need in the way of mental capabilities, more or less. It's an added bonus if you've had an OBE or wake-initiated lucid dream. See Chapter 7, Wake Unto Sleep. Now on to the fun part. I'm going to lay this out in a step-by-step fashion, followed by a more detailed explanation of what to expect upon achieving your first departure. Keep in mind that results may vary. Step 1. Fall asleep on your back in a slanted position. It could be on a recliner or a car seat, but your body must be diagonal relative to the ground. That's the only way I've ever been able to get this to work. For one reason or another, gravity plays a role. Step 2. Attain sleep paralysis. This is more of a waiting game than a step as it's not entirely possible to execute it well. When it does happen, lucidity is key. You must be aware that you're in a state of deep sleep paralysis and be unafraid of your lack of mobility. This is one of the ways being a lucid dreamer comes in handy. Step 3. Once paralyzed, attempt to move your legs. If you're in the proper position, at least one of them should be mobile. If you can't move either leg then you'll have to restart and experiment by tilting your seat in different positions. Step 4. Upon freeing one or more of your legs, attempt to free your arms. They will feel incredibly stiff, and you shouldn't be able to move them, try as you might. You should then feel a sharp sting on your head. Don't be alarmed, you're not having an aneurysm. This is completely normal and is necessary to make your exit. Step 5. As difficult and strenuous as it may be, keep trying to free your arms. As you do this, attempt to move the rest of your body as well. Put everything you have into fighting the paralysis. Just don't fall back asleep. Step 6. As you wrestle with your mind and body, the stinging sensation in your brain is going to grow. It won't be painful, but it will cause you great discomfort. Let it happen. As the sensation builds, you'll start to feel yourself drift away from your body. Don't fight it. Your mind is like a rubber band and will want to bounce back from where it's being stretched. 
Don't let it. Follow the flow of departure. If you steal your mind's focus and follow these instructions to a T, you will have successfully exited your earthly meat sack and unlocked a marvel of the mind that has only just begun to be understood. And that's the gist of it. The author went on to say that the world you find yourself in, upon departure, will harbor some differences to the one you started in. It will appear similar in almost every way, but will be completely void of any life forms. On top of that, nothing will budge. Everything will remain in its place, as still as can be. After revealing the delicate process of re-entering one's body, the author ended the chapter with an eerie warning. Whatever you do, don't go near the water. I was dumbfounded. The entire book up to that point was factual, but what that last chapter seemed like was something out of a science fiction novel. It certainly made for good entertainment, but I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Why have such an out-of-place pseudoscience chapter in an otherwise reputable book? It just didn't make any sense. About a week passed before I thought about the book again. It was almost time to return it to the library, so I decided to reread its final chapter. As absurd as it seemed, I teetered between laughing it off once and for all and actually giving it a shot. It did meet all of the requirements, and it would amuse me to some small extent. I could, at the very least, say I tried it for myself, if for no other reason than to prove it was a load of crap. After weighing the pros and cons, I ended up giving in to my curiosity. I knew it wasn't going to work, but it would be fun, a little experiment, if nothing else. Besides, was there really anything better for me to do during an episode of sleep paralysis? The only minor nuisance was that I'd have to sleep on one of my recliners instead of in a big, comfy, king-sized sort of mattress. My small price to pay for the sake of scientific discovery, I suppose. On the night in question, I wound up having three episodes of sleep paralysis. During the first, I was far too groggy. I completely forgot about the book and quickly fell back asleep. The second one lasted a bit longer, and I was able to remember the steps outlined in the last chapter. I could just barely move one of my legs, and upon trying my arms, I did feel a small but noticeable discomfort in my head. I wondered, for a split second, if the author was onto something, and that made me a bit excited. Because of this, I jolted awake. Reflecting on the incident, I became intrigued. I still didn't believe that I could exit my body, but I knew something was going on. I decided to tilt the recliner back a bit and try again. This time I would have better control. The next episode came pretty quick. I hadn't fallen asleep yet, but my body was getting ready to. That's it, I thought. I allowed the paralysis to fully set in before attempting anything. It was difficult not to fall asleep, but I managed. This time around, I was able to gain full control over my left leg. I moved it back and forth a few times before trying to free my arms. True to the method, they wouldn't budge and felt oddly stiff, more so than usual. 
This is when the familiar sting set in. It jarred me, but I kept going. The more I tried to move my arms, the greater the sting grew. Believe it or not, as I continued, I did, in fact, feel myself drifting away from my body. I tried to keep it up, but my nerves got the best of me. I lost all control for just a moment and was sucked right back into my body, immediately waking up in the process. The experience startled the hell out of me. It was beginning to seem more and more likely that the last chapter of Jack Grovewood's book was somehow accurate. My curiosity became aroused to such an extent that I felt the overwhelming need to tell somebody about it. Luckily, I knew just the person. My buddy Josh is a character. He believes in a lot of what I don't. This causes us to butt heads on a lot of topics. In simple terms, I'm a skeptic, and he's a believer. One thing we can agree on, however, is our love for dreams. He's the only person I can talk to at length about the subject. He also happens to meet the requirements listed in the book. I was hoping he would join me for a sleep session and help me get to the bottom of what was going on. I called Josh up and told him everything. He was ecstatic, as I knew he would be and agreed to meet me at my place the following night for departure. In his mind, this was going to go off without a hitch. I wasn't completely sold on it yet. I was just happy to have someone else to tag along for the ride. Fast forward to the following night. We hung out for a bit, and I showed Josh the book. His eyes grew wide upon reading the final chapter, and he couldn't wait to try it out himself. I told him not to get his hopes up, but it was clear to me that they already were. Ready as ever, we lay down at opposite ends of the living room on my two recliners. Josh cracked a joke about how this was the first night we'd be sleeping together. I threw a pillow at him and then we're off. Shut-eye was just around the corner. This was when things took a turn for the bizarre. I didn't have an episode of sleep paralysis right away, but I did end up waking a few hours into my nap. I noticed that Josh was fast asleep in the recliner across the room. Needing to empty my bladder, I walked past him to get to the bathroom, tripping over his legs in the process. I met the floor with a thud and turned around to see if Josh had woken. To my surprise, he hadn't. I knew he was a heavy sleeper, but even he should have woken up given the commotion. Becoming worried, I called out his name. No reaction. I tried shaking him. Nothing. I grabbed a wrist and checked his pulse. It was there, however weak. This was when I panicked. I ran to my room, grabbed my phone, and scrambled to hit the call button. Just as I was about to dial 911, I heard a loud gasp from the next room, like a diver coming up for air. I ran out there as fast as I could, and to my delight, Josh was awake. He looked up at me with wide eyes and said, Dude, it fucking worked. I was flabbergasted. Though Josh was an over-enthusiastic believer, and downright stubborn at times, he was no liar. I asked him more than once if he was sure it wasn't a dream, and he insisted that he was absolutely certain. Between his firm conviction and weak pulse just moments before, I had no choice but to believe him. 
It seemed that the book was legitimate after all. We spent the next couple of hours talking about it. After leaving his body, Josh found himself in my living room, but it was noticeably inanimate. Everything was perfectly still, not even a speck of dust floating through the air. Josh also noticed that his body was translucent, a milky-white outline of its former shape. He attempted to open the door to my house, but the knob wouldn't turn and the door would not budge. It took him a while to realize this, but he found that his new form allowed him to phase through walls. Josh went on to tell me that the world outside was very different from ours. He said it was like having the contrast dialed up on a picture. That and the static nature of everything made it feel like being trapped in a photograph. I tried to imagine it, but I knew I needed to see it for myself. We made plans to go back to sleep and enter the world together. Despite my excitement, I was able to make my first successful departure that night. Josh was waiting in the room for me, next to his sleeping body. Seeing ourselves like that was fascinating in and of itself, but I wanted more than anything to see the world outside, a world where adventure and discovery awaited us. For a few weeks, Josh slept over at my house, and we discovered the new world. It was fun and downright addicting. Curiosity was what kept us going, and we wanted to know more and more about the odd realm we had discovered. Here are just a few of the things we learned during our excursions. The lighting is fixed. It always looks to be about noontime, though there's no sun in the sky. It's impossible to phase through older buildings, not really sure why. There are no life forms, just as the book stated, not even animals or insects. Sound is reverbed. There's always a slight echo when Josh and I talk. It is possible to fall asleep there, but you won't dream. If you travel too far from your body, you'll hit an invisible wall and be unable to go any further. Time doesn't pass in the real world while you're departed. After about a month of successful departures, things changed. The more we explored, the more uncomfortable I felt. It always seemed like something was watching us, even though there was no one around. Josh was the opposite. Our late-night adventures were becoming so routine for him that he was becoming bored. He kept talking about water and how he wanted to get a closer look at the pond near the main road. I reminded Josh of the author's warning, but it didn't seem to faze him. Eventually, his curiosity got the best of him. One night, upon leaving my body, Josh was nowhere to be found. I thought that maybe he hadn't departed yet, but up to that point, he had always beaten me to the punch. This could only mean one thing. I phased through the walls of my home and raced to the nearby pond. Josh was there, standing at the end of the dock that locals used for fishing in the real world. I yelled out to them, Josh, what are you doing? It's fine, see? There's nothing to be afraid of, it's just water. I watched as Josh reached down and touched the surface of the pond. It rippled. The hair on the back of my neck stood up. The water should not have reacted. We'd been there for weeks and hadn't seen a single thing move. Even the air was still.
Perplexed, I began walking out toward Josh. He lifted his hand up, just as awestruck as I was. As he pulled his arm back, the ripple expanded. With it, a small portion of the water turned dark. After a few moments, something reached out from the blackness. It was a hand. A fucking hand. It reached up, grabbed Josh's leg, yanking him downward. He went feet first into the water, holding onto the dock for dear life. As he screamed, I ran toward him. Before I could even get halfway to the position, I watched him disappear into the water. I ran the rest of the way, but the darkness had faded and returned to normal. My best friend was gone. In a state of fear-induced panic, I ran away. I wanted to save Josh, but I didn't know how. Plus, I felt that if I re-entered my body, perhaps I'd find him awake in the real world. It was wishful thinking, but it was all I had. That wishful thinking fell flat when I woke. Josh was still unconscious. I tried and tried, but I could not wake him. Eventually, I called 911, and he was taken away on a stretcher. The doctors say he's in a coma, but can't discern what caused it. And that's everything. I'm a fucking wreck over what happened. I've tried visiting Josh in the hospital, but I can't face his parents, and they're always there. Instead, I go out to the pond in the real world, hoping that somehow I'll find answers. All I do end up finding are more questions. They keep me up at night, along with a recurring nightmare replaying the events from that day. I've tried departing since, but to no avail. Something's holding me back. It might be fear. That world is like a photograph, a still frame of a place we were never meant to see. A moment frozen in time with a layer of reality stripped away, and something is living there. Despite this truth, I feel a need to dive back in and save my friend. He didn't heed the author's warning, but I'm the reason he entered the world in the first place. I'm the reason he can't wake up. I have to go back. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed How to Exit Your Body by author Christopher Maxson. As a reminder, Chris needs our help. Quarantined indefinitely due to his serious health condition and left unemployed and finding it difficult 
to collect his much-needed benefits, Chris has come to us asking for whatever help we can offer. If you're interested in helping and would like to either donate to Chris directly to thank him for his fantastically fearsome tales, or contribute by picking up a copy of one or more of his books on Amazon, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash maxim, spelled M-A-X-I-M. You'll find a donation link there, as well as links to his Amazon profile, books for sale, and his social media, as well as a contact form, if you'd like to reach out and talk about other ways to help. Every little bit helps. Thanks again for your support of the writers that make this show possible. Up next, we've got another tale from Mr. Maxim, sure to make your blood run cold. In it, we'll meet someone who discovers something rather strange about their neighbor's canine companion. Now, what are they going to do about it? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Zipper Dog. At first, I didn't think anything of it. My neighbor would stop to chat with me, leash in hand, and I would catch glimpses of the metal slider dangling from its belly. I assumed it was wearing a piece of pet clothing, or that perhaps it was the byproduct of some awkward veterinarian procedure. But the more we chatted, and the more I saw this mysterious zipper, the more I realized it was out of the ordinary clearly embedded in the dog's skin. It drew my attention every time we engaged in small talk, until finally one day I decided to ask about it. Say, what is that zipper for on the little guy's belly, anyway? Oh, that? It's a long story. I wouldn't want to bore you. I've got nothing but time. I wondered if she could see the beads of sweat forming above my brow. Really, it's nothing, just a safety measure. And that was it. She pretty much laughed it off, granting me little in the way of an explanation. Thinking back, her responses were downright vague and deflective. She could see how curious I was, so why not just tell me? And what exactly did she mean by safety measure? As unfruitful as our conversation was, I didn't press the matter any further. Days, weeks, months went by. I'd occasionally see the dog's strange cosmetic feature, but I brushed it off every time, knowing it would only haunt me if I dwelled on it. Still, the thought itched in the back of my mind. It wasn't until a few months had passed that I would finally have the nerve to scratch it. I was pulling up weeds along my fence, when I looked over at my neighbor's place, noticing the dog lying on the back porch. A stray cat wandered by, as often happened in our neighborhood. Without so much as a warning growl or malicious stance, the dog trotted over to the cat and scarfed it down, the sound of sharp teeth colliding with bone. The cat screeched in agony until it was no more. In a minute flat, its entire body was devoured. I was in shock. The cat's cries alerted my neighbor to the situation. She raced outside, grabbed the dog by the collar, and pulled him into the house. Through the sliding door, it was tough to make out, but I swear she unzipped him 
and reached inside, seemingly adjusting one of its organs. He didn't flinch, not even a bit. After pulling her arm out, the dog dropped to the floor, dead as a doornail from the looks of it. She then carried him outside and placed him back on the porch, arranging him in a sleeping position before getting in her car and leaving for the day. This five-minute span of visual information was unlike anything I'd ever witnessed. Words like gruesome, strange, and horrific are too tame to describe what I saw. I was appalled beyond measure. After the shock wore off, I hopped the fence and approached the dog's carcass. I felt its neck, cold to the touch, no pulse. I looked to its underside, and there it was, that godforsaken zipper in all of its mysterious glory. I felt kind of bad for the dog dying, but I had to know what that damn thing was there for. I needed an explanation for not only the dog's, but my neighbor's odd behavior just moments ago. I slowly unzipped the dog's belly, placating my curiosity with the satisfying sound of metal sliding across metal. I spread each side of the opening with both hands and peered in, divulging the animal's inner workings. What I saw was absolutely dumbfounding. My neighbor's dog was animatronic. There was wiring, gears, a tank where its stomach should have been, the whole nine yards. It didn't make any sense, but there it was, staring me back from the zipper. After scurrying home in shock, I decided that my best course of action would be to call animal control. I could tell them that my neighbor's dog trespassed on my lawn and was attacking the neighborhood cats. They would show up, examine the robotic carcass, and then go from there. I knew there wasn't a protocol for that sort of thing, but I assumed they could take care of things and contact the appropriate people, whether it be the police, the government, or the National Enquirer. As long as this weird predicament was taken care of, I could sleep easy knowing that my neighbor's strange robot dog wasn't going around eating whatever it pleased. Simple, right? Nope. Far from it. Animal control took a while to get there. By the time they arrived, my neighbor had come home and disposed of the evidence, hiding the dog somewhere in her home. The animal control officer apologized for the misunderstanding and left, leaving my neighbor on her front porch, glaring in my direction. It appeared privacy meant nothing to the local authorities. Just by luck. The days that followed were different. My neighbor's dog had sprung to life, reactivated by its master, no doubt. They would walk their usual path around the cul-de-sac, but would not stop for small talk. I knew her dirty little secret, after all. I was no longer a friendly neighbor to be conversed with. Oh, no. I was the enemy, a danger to this woman's unusual way of life. Even if I meant no harm to her or her strange choice of pet, she didn't seem to see it that way. She continued to give me the cold shoulder for about a month and a half before finally speaking with me again 
on one of her daily strolls. Hey there. Hello, everything all right? Oh, just peachy. I'm having a cookout on Saturday at noon. You're more than welcome to come. Strange. We weren't on speaking terms for over a month, and now I was suddenly invited over? Maybe this was her extending an olive branch my way, her, her way of saying, no hard feelings. Yeah, sure, I can make it. Sounds like a good time. Great, I'll add you to the list. As she walked away, I felt the need to apologize, even if her dog was a weird cat-eating robot. Hey, about that animal control call, I just wanted to say, oh, don't worry about it, water under the bridge. See you Saturday. She hurried off, and that was that. Problem solved. Or so I thought. The night before the cookout, I couldn't sleep. Kept on hearing what sounded like footsteps creeping around the perimeter of my house. Every time I got up to investigate, the sound ceased, and the coast appeared to be clear. It was either a prank at my expense, a burglar taking their sweet time to pull the trigger, or ghosts roaming around in the night. Either way, it left me anxious, making sleep a distant dream, just out of my reach. During a particularly loud set of footsteps, I raced downstairs, just in time to catch four glowing dots peering in through my living room window. This was enough to make my neck hairs stand upright. Though terrified, I wasted no time grabbing a ball bat and storming up my front door to greet the would-be intruders. I may be old, but I can still kick some ass when needed, especially when it involves crossing my property line. To my astonishment, my yard was empty. I covered every side of the house, only to find no one, not a soul in sight in any direction I looked. I don't care how fast you can sprint. Nobody could have made it out of eyeshot in such a short period of time, even in those low-light conditions. Baffled and even more anxious than before, I locked up every last door and window in my home before crawling under the covers like a frightened child, scared of the mystery figures lurking in the shadows. The footsteps dissipated over the course of the night, and as the sun came up over the horizon, so too did my fear. My waking nightmare had ended, but not before putting a weary, sleep-deprived frame of mind in its place. In a sluggish slur of movement, I grudgingly made my way to my neighbor's house around noon, ready as I would ever be for the neighborhood get-together. Oddly enough, there were no cars in the driveway aside from my own. I wondered if I got the date wrong, but after knocking on the door, she greeted me with a smile and rushed me into the house. We exchanged pleasantries, and she sat me down at the bar stool in the kitchen. After a few moments of awkward silence, I mustered up the courage to ask about the elephant in the room. So, where is everybody? You're already here, silly. I tilted my head, puzzled. What about everyone else? There is no one else. You're the only person I invited. All at once, pieces clicked into place. I felt stupid for not realizing it sooner. Her sudden kindness, the noises the night before. There was no cookout. There was never any cookout. I was in the middle of a trap, lured in largely due to my own idiocy. 
I should have guessed that something sinister was going on the moment I unzipped that dog. So, what happens now? I asked. Oh, you'll see. Just sit tight. Quickly jumped up from my chair and turned towards the door. With inhuman speed, she bolted in front of me, a large kitchen knife in hand. Not so fast. I stood there, still as stone, intimidated by her fluid motions and firm stance. We need to talk. About what? I knew exactly what. Don't play dumb with me. And that's when I noticed it. On her chest, peeking through the top of her blouse, I would have missed it had the sunlight coming through the window not danced across its metal. She had a zipper, too. Stricken to my core with fear, my gaze was interrupted by an angry hand gesture. My eyes are up here. The moments that ensued are a bit fuzzy, but I can only guess that I was knocked out or chloroformed as I awoke strapped to a chair in a new room. Given the staircase, I assumed it was her basement, though this realization didn't help me any. I attempted to break free of my restraints, but it was no use. Unless she freed me herself, I was fastened to that chair for life. In absence of mobility, I decided to give the place a once-over. The staircase was to my left and a concrete wall to my right, but directly in front of me was a workstation, complete with a dozen computers. This is where my neighbor sat, a USB cord snaking out of her unzipped chest, typing away at a blinding rate. Her motives were still unclear to me. Though confined to the one view, I was able to turn my neck enough in both directions to form a decent picture of what was behind me. It was a wall of cages, each housing an identical copy of her dog. They didn't move, even in the slightest, likely just as animatronic as she was. What on God's green earth had I stumbled into? Just then, my neighbor ripped the cord from her chest and walked over to me. Ah, good, you're awake. Did you have a nice nap? I refused to reply, looking her up and down in disgust, trying to make out what this thing was that was speaking to me. What's the matter? Dog got your tongue? I remained silent in lieu of her taunting me. That's all right, you just need to listen. Sit tight. I'll be right back. She walked over to her workstation and grabbed something before reclaiming her spot in front of me. I've worked too hard in this location to have you screwing things up on me. Then again, it's my own fault. I was careless. I never should have left my core on the porch like that. I assumed she was talking about the dog. I want you to look at this. She placed the object at eye level. It was a badge of sorts, upon which was a logo that read, Synthetitech. I'm an android. I work for a large company, moving from location to location, gathering specific information that's crucial to our initiative. You can't know anything beyond that. Hell, you already know too much. I hadn't noticed it at first, but she seemed to be keeping playing with her zipper. God, I'm so sick of this fucking meat suit. Before my very eyes, she removed her clothing and unzipped herself down to the groin. In the most unnatural way possible, she slid out of her own skin, revealing to me her true form. 
She was nothing but a pile of electronics, pieced together in a human shape. It was a strange sight, nauseating in every sense of the word. The way she moved and spoke, while like this, was downright sickening. I can't say anymore, but I want you to know that our work is necessary. If you were to speak these truths to the world above, you would be jeopardizing everything we've accomplished. You have to submit to our intentions and see that they are just. I didn't know what to make of this. I simply looked away, wishing not to see her grotesque, animatronic face any longer. Unfortunately for me, she grabbed it and forced it in her direction anyway, feeling of cold metal enveloping my jaw. You need to promise me that you will submit. You're not to tell anyone of any of this. Do you understand? I nodded in agreement, but only because I wanted her hand off my face. Luckily, she let go and backed away. Good. You know, we're not so bad when you get to know us. In a sense, we're just like you. Internally, I scoffed at the thought of this. I was nothing like her, and not just because of her appearance. I was never one to go around kidnapping my neighbors, holding them captive in my basement. It just wasn't my cup of tea. Well, this is it. I'll need you to take over from here. Don't make the same mistake I did, lest you regret it for the rest of your life. This was the last thing she said to me, though I had no idea what any of it meant. I must have been knocked unconscious again, because the next thing I remember was waking up on her basement floor, no longer bound by my restraints. For one reason or another, she didn't kill me. I was a free man. Without warning, a group of trained operatives burst through the basement door and raced down to help me up. Are you all right? Yes, I'm fine. What's going on? I noticed a few of the men walk on opposite sides of the room to gather evidence. One guy ripped open a cage, grabbed one of the dogs, and unzipped him, revealing it to be nothing but a hollow carcass. They're empty, sir, a collection of shells. Just as I suspected. No matter. Load them into the truck with the hard drives. Hopefully she didn't wipe them before she left. I must have looked completely bewildered because the gentleman grabbed me by the shoulders and looked me straight in the eye. Everything's fine now. We've been on this woman's tail for a long time. We may not have captured her, but this is still a big win. And it's all thanks to you. I was still confused, but more so relieved that it was all over. Are you sure you're all right? Don't need a ride to the hospital? I shook my head, not wishing to be poked and prodded after what I'd endured. I didn't trust doctors much anyway. I just wanted to go home. Okay, let me walk you to your house. I agreed, and we were off. I couldn't wait to get inside and put the whole ordeal behind me. That was the plan, anyway. Whatever government officials they were, the entire crew picked the place clean and left my neighborhood within a couple of hours. That night, I received a call from them for a statement regarding the situation. I obliged and asked some questions myself. Though the information was privileged, 
I guilted them into giving me some details, claiming I needed some peace of mind so I could sleep at night. The fact that I was just a frail old man helped, too. It would seem my neighbor was a high-ranking disciple in an android cult hell-bent on infiltrating various government agencies. They were currently in the process of recruiting new members to aid in their cause. It's all I was told, which was more than I thought I'd get. This was enough to placate my curiosity and keep me from dwelling on events as they unfolded. I thanked the man on the other end and hung up, content with my feelings. After the ending of the call, I heard a knock at my front door. I don't usually get visitors late at night, but I suspected it would be one of my neighbors asking about the sting operation that just took place next door. I opened the door, and to my surprise, there was no person there to greet me. Nope, not a person. Instead, there was a dog, identical to my neighbor's. Before I could process its arrival, it trotted inside and sat on the floor. A voice then emanated from its collar. Shut the door. I did as the dog said, baffled and afraid. Hello. I'm serial number 724-234. I'll be your core companion on your journey of fulfillment. True adventure awaits. Would you like to begin your first task? I didn't know how to respond or what in God's name was happening, but it was at this point I felt an itch running up the length of my torso. It was subtle at first, but grew to the point that I had to reach down my shirt and scratch at it. That's when I felt a familiar metal caress my fingers. It took a moment for it to sink in, but I knew exactly what I was feeling. It was a zipper. I hope you enjoyed Zipper Dog by author Christopher Maxim. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. Also, as a reminder, tonight's featured author, Christopher Maxim, who generously contributed all four of this episode's tales, needs our help. Immunocompromised due to a high-risk health condition and quarantined indefinitely and having difficulty paying bills and getting the help he needs to improve his health, Chris would appreciate any assistance you can offer, whether that be buying copies of his books or donating directly to him to thank him for his work crafting the tales you've heard tonight. Even a one-time donation makes a huge difference. If you're interested in helping, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash maxim, spelled M-A-X-I-M, where you'll find links to Chris's donation page, social media, and Amazon profile, with several of his amazing collections of tales and short stories available. Thanks again for your support of the writers that help make this show possible. 
It means a lot to both of us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get your access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Chiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>
In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Ha 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 ha.